right, well, here we are again for another episode. You know, I was sitting down to record this, and I noticed, oh, man, my, my heart rate is a little fast. I started thinking, like, did I pound a bunch of sugar? Did I eat something with caffeine? And then I realized, no, I'm just excited to record. You know how many times that's happened to me before recording, and I never made the connection that I was excited? You know, they say over and over again that excitement and anxiety are basically physiologically the same in your body. So it's really easy to confuse the two. So I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is I'm really happy to be here right now. And to be honest, I almost did not record tonight. I almost didn't record because I went through yesterday and today preparing for the episode, getting everything organized so that at least I had some semblance of what I was going to be talking about. And then about two, two and a half hours ago, I started feeling this like, like a bowling ball in my gut. Like, oh, something I ate is not going through my intestines very well. And if you know, if you've ever experienced something in your gut, it affects your whole body. It affects your body temperature. It affects your energy level, it affects your mind, it affects like whether you feel nauseated or not. The, the, uh, it, it actually, it affects whether you feel depressed or not or anxious or not. There's so much tied to the gut. And it reminded me of this book that I started reading and I have yet to finish, which I need to go back to called the mind gut connection by a doctor. His name is Emeryn Mayer. So I need to, I need to finish that and bring that into an episode because there is some really interesting stuff about the gut and how the gut and the brain are connected. So maybe that's why it happened today. If we believe in the idea of fate, then uh, that was, I guess, in a way, a message to me. Go back and finish that book. <clears throat> My tea is the right temperature this week. So apparently you guys loved the episode last week, which is uh, awesome, but also a little bit surprising. I'm not going to lie. Uh, when I go into stuff like Zettelkasten, I worry sometimes that I'm losing people. Like, am I going, going too nerdy? Am I, am, I, am, am I not explaining this in a way that's interesting? In particular, the section where like I read out the series of notes and how they jump to each other. I listened to that afterwards and I was like, uh, does that work as well when you're not me sitting in the front of the computer, seeing them visually connect? So if I'm going to look at the numbers, I'm going to say it worked for you guys. And it proves a point. It proves a point that, uh, if you, if you listen to a lot of podcast advice out there or probably, um, television, radio, any, any kind of programming advice out there. A lot of it tells you to hone things and to perfect things and to simplify things and use the simplest words possible. And I guess what I'm trying to say is when you do that and you go too far with that, you notice that the stuff becomes really boring and it's no longer engaging. There has to be some sort of challenge in something to be engaging. If it's really simple and easy to understand, why are you watching it? You, there's got to be something that puzzles you that you have to think about or like, 
something that sticks with you afterwards. You know, maybe you're listening to something and then there's one part you're like, what, what the hell were they talking about there? That doesn't make any sense. And you go over that in your head in the next few days, you're carrying that content with you in a way that you wouldn't if everything was perfect, quote unquote, perfect. I feel like formulaic, when you make things formulaic, what you're actually doing is undermining the intelligence of your audience. You're, you're saying, I'm not sure they can figure that out. And, uh, another reminder, I guess, to me, like, just do, you know, that, that I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, uh, try to make things understandable, but you don't have to make it perfect. Not perfect. You know, I, I, I put prep in every one of these episodes and I try to make sure that I at least have an idea of what I'm going to say and that it makes some sort of sense. But I'm not going to go back and record it and re-record it and re-record it to make sure that it's as polished and as neat and as perfect as it can possibly be. You know, it's just, it's boring. And who the hell wants to do that on my hand either? People who like doing that are extraordinary as far as I'm concerned. Oh, mm. I get bored with my thoughts the moment I, the moment I share them. <laughs> I'm excited about them until the moment that they come out of my mouth to somebody else. And then I go, oh. you know, like, uh, John Coffey and, uh, the green mile when he expels all the, all the flies, the flies or bees, I think it's flies. The bees were uh, candy man. That's what I feel like when I have something to share. How it's yours. Okay, let's have sound effects. <laughs> uh, how do we week this week? Uh, for somebody who is prone to uh, anxiety, balance, um, balance is kind of an illusion. Maybe that's not the word I want to use. But routine is super important because, uh, when something, when I, I guess I have to use the word balance when I'm in a good routine, I stay balanced, but not in the balanced in the way of like, uh, my work life balance and not that kind of balance. I mean, like if you imagine me standing on the top of a fence <laughs> or on top of a high wire, I'm balanced in the sense that I'm not falling to the left and I'm not falling to the right. I'm just barely teetering on the edge and routine can keep me there. But if something tips me one way, this is, I usually refer to these things as anxiety flare-ups. You get an anxiety flare-up, you forget all the stuff that you learned about how to deal with anxiety. You have to slowly remind yourself how to do it and get yourself back into the healthy patterns and pull yourself back from the break. And, uh, this week I kind of had that because, uh, I took Latte to, Latte's my dog. If I haven't, if you're new, you haven't heard that yet. I took him to the park. This is four or five days ago. And it was just a beautiful day. And we got there and I was like, let's, let's run, let's run across the grass. Cause you know, the poor little guy, he doesn't get to run a ton. You know, we don't have a two, two acre backyard. So he doesn't get to run a ton. So I want him to actually run, you know, that's part of a healthy thing. And I want to run too. And running on grass is awesome because it's better for your knees and your shins. 
So we were running across this field and we got all the way across and in my mind, I'm going, awesome. I'm breathing well. I think about that a lot when I run. I think about how I'm breathing afterwards, what my lung recovery is right like, because I smoked for 18 years until I think it was 2014 when I quit. So I always think about like, oh, my lungs are getting, you know, to, they say it takes like 10 years for your lungs to begin to really, truly recover from smoking. So until I hit like 2024, I'm always going to be thinking about what's going on with my lungs. So we, we jog and I'm going, oh, I, my lung recovery is good. Oh, my lungs are really getting healthy and I'm feeling good about that, right? You know how you get, you feel good about the fact that you're healthy. I'm feeling good about that. Then I look over and the dog is limping. He won't put his right foot down on the ground and he keeps stopping and putting the paw in his mouth. And so I sit down and you know, I grab him and I look at his paw and I'm trying to look in there and see if there's anything in there, what's going on. Couldn't find anything. Poor little guy's limping. We're all the way at the park, which was, I'm going to say like 20 minutes from home and I had to pick him up and carry him home all the way. And then he came home and, uh, he's also been having some like mild allergies. Um, essentially what, I guess I'll tell this in the order of how I learned things. I was operating under the belief that he had food allergies, that certain things he ate would flare him up because when I first got him, he started to get super itchy and we couldn't figure out what it was. And the doctor said, well, maybe it's something he's allergic to try, you know, limiting his food and we went through this whole process and we got to the point where I was like, oh, I, I seems like maybe it's chicken. So I've been operating for like two years on the assumption that this poor guy's allergic to chicken, which by the way, sucks because most dog treats and dog food out there has chicken in it. It's like one of the most common ingredients. So anyways, he, when he gets that, when he got that flare up before, uh, the reason I knew is because he got an infection in his ear. I guess that's the way the immune system works within the dog's body. You get some kind of allergic response. The ear is one of the first things that suffer. And I had been noticing recently that his ear was looking a little red inside and I kept looking in every day, nothing scabby, you know, like, uh, it didn't look like it was getting worse, but it was just red instead of pink. So I've been thinking about that and, and I had a appointment coming up for him anyways, for a checkup. So I was, you know, like, oh, I'm look at his ear when he goes in. Well, now he's limping around. I'm like, I got to change the appointment. So I changed the appointment to the next day, which is the newest, new, next appointment that they had. And then of course, by then that evening, his paw was fine. I think he just stepped on a stick and it stabbed him and it hurt for like an hour or two. You know, it's kind of like taking a little kid to the park. Sometimes they fall and they scrape their knees. Uh, so that's basically what happened to him. And then I took him to the vet and yeah, it turns out he was starting to get an ear infection and he was having an allergic response and had this really awesome vet who um, was not only knowledgeable um, because every, I've been very lucky. Every vet that I've had with him in the, uh, three years that I've had him almost three years, the, every vet that I've had has been very knowledgeable, but some of them are smart, but not social. So they're telling you stuff and you're like, I, okay, I think I know what you mean there, but they're just not relating it in a way that like it's easily digestible. Going back to, I guess, that topic. 
I got a vet who was very good at explaining stuff and very knowledgeable. And uh, basically, me telling her stuff and her, you know, using her experience and her knowledge, she thinks that he doesn't have a food allergy, that he actually has a flea allergy. And which is, which is surprising to me um, because he takes medicine for fleas. But the medicine he takes for fleas, which is all natural, because um, I didn't want him taking toxic chemical, chemicals, because I know that can cause cancer in little dogs, um, some of them. I just wanted to be safe. But the way this thing works is the flea gets on the dog, it bites them, and then the flea dies. But the problem is, is if a dog has a flea allergy, the allergy is when the flea bites the dog. So yes, these fleas were dying, so they're not living on him. He's not flea infested. There's no fleas in my house. There's no fleas in his bed. But they're still biting him. And it happens both the times he's had allergies. happens in the summer. When guess what? Fleas wake up. <laughs> fleas are everywhere. So we had to put a topical on him to kill them. And now he's on allergy medicine. And But the whole reason I got off balance, number one, worried about my dog. It's like, oh my God, there's something wrong with his foot. And then I'm worried about the allergy. And then also in my head, like, how much is this going to cost me? You know, because I, I had a cat uh, for 10 years. And when, I guess it was maybe three or four years before, before she died, she started getting this continual ear infection in this really nose. And uh, they always wanted to do like a CAT scan on her, which is, you know, CAT, CAT scan. I always thought that was funny. Uh, but the CAT scan was like $1,000. And I never had $1,000, so I, I couldn't do anything. But I'm like, okay, well, how do we treat her symptoms and make her happy and comfortable so she doesn't have a runny nose all the time? And then it turned out later that she had cancer the whole time. And even though, like, if I got the CAT scan, I probably wouldn't be able to do anything about it either because you know, chemotherapy for a cat is probably almost as expensive as it is for a human. But I always felt bad about that. So I knew that when I got the dog, uh, I was going to make money never an issue. You know, if I had to starve for three weeks because the dog was sick, that's fine. That's a responsibility I took on by taking this life on as my responsibility just as you would with a child. Um, so I was willing to put down whatever I had, but I was also worried, you know, like, because the last time that we went in and he had the allergy, it was like, I would say it was like $400 with the medicine because he had to have an ear wash and the medicine and then the, the, the visit and the, the test because they had to swab the ear for the bacteria and it was it ended up being like 400 or $500 somewhere in there. And uh, after last year, just not in a financial place to take a hit like that out of the blue. Still, still talking about delicately balanced, still delicately balanced. So anyways, lucked out. They have this new ear medicine that's one drop in each side. You don't have to flush it. It's cheap. It's like 50 bucks. Uh, got these allergy meds that were like $30 and he got the little flea dip was like 20 bucks. I got out of there for under $150. Dog's happy. He's getting better. His allergies are going down. Weird week, but it worked out well, except that it put me out of balance. 
And uh, I've just been kind of dealing with that. Anyways, let's, uh, I'm gonna, this might be a little a bit of a weird episode because I am in a bit of a transition in, in reference specifically to last week's episode about Zettelcast and uh, just going through learning more about it. I've, I've been practicing some form of Zettelkasten for at least a year, but I didn't actually, I've been practicing it wrong. There was a lot of misconceptions. There are a little, a lot of misconceptions on the internet about how it functions that are just not true. Um, that's probably because people are iterating, which is fine, you know, but then other people are picking up this person's iteration and thinking it's the original ideology. So anyways, having finally learned recently, as I shared last week about what real Zettelkasten is like, it's kind of been transforming uh, the way that I do everything because these shows come from my notes and, and the way that I consume content. And that directly relates to my notes and, and how I consume content. So we'll talk, we're actually the segment at the end, you know, I just do a, like a little bit of a longer nonfiction or non media consumption, uh, section at the end of the show. A good portion of that is going to be about, I'm just talking about what Zellcast and then what I've been kind of dealing with over the past week in a good way. I think, I think it's, it's doing something cool, but because of that, my notes are arranged in a different way. So let's see, let's see how I, how I juggle this. I want to talk a little bit more in this intro section. That's usually just about me, uh, my health, my uh, personal life, I guess. To some degree, <laughs> my dog is my personal life. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about sleep. I, I talk about sleep a lot. That's because it's super important. But there's two things that have kind of changed recently with my sleep. Number one, my sleep is getting uh, off and on, getting more regular. It starts to get to where I'm sleeping like four hours at a time sometimes. And then I go back to the waking up every hour. So I'm transitioning back and forth. And it's just because it's a matter of I'm adopting healthy habits that start to show progress. And then like most human beings, I think now I can slack off a little. And the moment I slack off, it slams back over to that uh, one out waking up every hour. Um, but I'm getting into a, a pretty regular pace with that. And I'm getting to a regular even when I'm sleeping every hour on those nights, I'm still doing better than I was before. And that's because of sleep debt. Um, I don't know if I ever, do I need to reiterate this? I don't know. You guys will have to tell me if I need to continually reiterate this, but I assume the way I talk, <laughs> which is very casually that most people know that I am not an expert in anything I'm talking about here. I'm not a doctor or a medical expert. This is just stuff I learn and I read because I, in the, in the case of sleep, I need to know it because it directly affects my life and my health. So sleep debt, as I understand it, is what you accumulate when you don't have eight hours of sleep. Or I shouldn't even say eight hours of sleep, when you don't have adequate sleep. Um, 
some people will tell you that they can get away with uh, less than eight hours of sleep, but pretty much every sleep expert on the planet says there are people that can do that, but they are literally like one in 500 million. <laughs> There's like five people on the planet that can actually do it and have no problems. The rest of us, if we don't get eight hours of restful sleep, we are in sleep debt. Um, and the reason I said it as the adequate sleep is some people need more than eight hours. You know, teenagers, for example, man, I remember as a teenager, I used to sleep like 12 hours and still wake up groggy, but my body was doing a lot of stuff, <laughs> stretching bones out, uh, pumping out hormones and stuff that, you know, sprouting hair where hair had never been all this, all those kind of crazy things, waking up the, the engine of the sexual drive. You know, for the first time, like, hey, let's turn this, turn this crank for the first time. See if it works. It's a lot of stuff for the body to do. And so, uh, yeah, slept a lot then. But if you're not getting the adequate amount of sleep, you're, you're accruing a sleep debt. So let's, let's use, uh, let's use numbers to make this a little abstract. Let's stick with eight hours. If, uh, your body requires the minimum eight hours, you're not a person who needs more and you're only sleeping seven hours, you're accruing an hour of sleep debt every day. And it takes longer. You know, the, the, the smaller the difference is, it takes longer. There are, I, I'm going to read uh, Dr. Matthew Walker's book on why we, called Why We Sleep soon. Since I talk about sleep so much, I need to go to him since he's like the leading, as far as I know, the leading expert on sleep. He's been studying sleep for over 20 years. So, and I believe he was actually one of the first people to like, why do we sleep? He was one of the first people to actually ask the question, why? Uh, anyways, sleep debt from the studies that he and his team have done, essentially, I don't remember the numbers, but if you're only sleeping seven of eight, then it might take, like, if you sleep only seven hours, uh, I, I'm actually going at this backwards. I'm sorry. If you take a group of people that uh, only sleep for two hours and you compare them to a group that's getting eight, so the eight people you're using as your control, okay? This is normal restful sleep. Compare them, their cognitive function of the people who are only getting sleep hour, sleep uh, two hours a night. It's literally like being hammered. Like your, your cognitive function is that impaired to the point where like, if you're that tired, you probably shouldn't be driving. And that happens, I think within one day, just one day of only sleeping two hours, you're, you're in that bucket. If you sleep four hours, you won't be that way the next day, but you'll be that way in a few days. If you sleep six hours, you won't be that way in a day, you won't be that way in a few days. You'd be that in like a week. And if you sleep seven hours, you understand where I'm going with this. Eventually we all get to that not functioning brain damaged state. Maybe damaged isn't the right word, but brain retarded state. And I don't mean that in the sense of mental retardation. I mean that in a sense of like flame retardant, the actual definition of the word you're it's being bounced back. Our mental capacity is being bounced back. It's being retarded. Um, 
if you, so that's the sleep debt that you're accruing. And the sleep debt, the reason they call it sleep debt is because you get to that point, we'll say, say you're the person that's sleeping seven hours and it takes you like a month to get to that same point of mental incapacity. Maybe that's a better word that I should have used earlier since the other one is kind of a, a touchy word. Um, but say it took you a month to get there. Well, going to sleep and, and getting eight hours of sleep one night, it's not going to turn everything around. You're not going to wake up the next day and be like, whew, back to normal because you have sleep debt. So that's the whole concept of sleep debt. It's, it's that one night of sleep doesn't, it's not like turning off a computer and turning it back on, like whew, everything back. No, you have the sleep debt and you have to slowly work off the sleep debt. So to deal with that, I've mentioned before that I'm sleeping more than I normally would sleep. You know, I'm not, I was actually accustomed. I was a seven hour sleeper and I was one of those people that thought I could get away with it. Um, obviously I didn't, <laughs> I had other problems too. But, uh, my sleep debt is pretty deep, you know, like I don't know exactly how long my sleep has been disrupted. I only know how long it's been severely disrupted because there's a good chance that my sleep has been mildly disrupted for, I would almost argue over a decade, um, because a lot of the effects have been slowly happening but then they hit landslide points. And those landslide points are the points where I was sleeping and waking up in 45 minutes and then sleeping and waking up in an hour and then sleeping and waking up in 45 minutes and then sleeping and waking up in 15 minutes every night. Or sometimes, and on top of that also, not going to bed for eight hours because I was still thinking I only needed to be in bed for seven. So not only was I waking up, waking up, waking up and never hitting the deep restorative sleep, I was also not sleeping the full eight hours. So my sleep debt was intense, is intense. I don't still, I don't think it's all gone yet. But because now I'm getting in bed and I'm going to sleep and I'm getting up and I'm not getting out of bed until nine and a half to 10 hours later, I'm not asleep all that time. You know, like I said, I'm waking up some of that time. So I'm compensating for the time that I'm waking up, but I'm also trying to pay off some of my sleep debt. So instead of sleeping for eight hours, I'm hoping that I'm getting like eight and a half hours of sleep. So that every day I'm knocking off like 30 minutes of that sleep debt. And I'm not sure that it works exactly mathematically one-to-one -one like that. Uh, but that's the way I think about it in my head. And it's working. It, it is working. My energy levels are reversing. I was at a point for a very long time where doing this podcast was very difficult. A reason doing this podcast was very difficult is because doing anything was very difficult. Thinking was very difficult. I had like no focus, no concentration. And I just, you know, when you're exhausted, you're just apathetic about everything. And the only thing on your mind is like surviving. Uh, that's where I was. So it was really hard to do what I wanted to do. And now and the reason I think that it had been going on a lot longer is one of the aspects of that was that I noticed this time through was a desire to change things. And the desire to change things is like, 
it's a way of, of your mind trying to reason out what's going on because it doesn't, I didn't know that the problems that I was having were related to sleep. I thought I was being lazy. And I thought I was being lazy because I wasn't inspired. That things weren't motivating me enough. That So I kept trying to change things. Well, maybe if I do this, this will motivate me more. Maybe if I do this, this will drive me more. Maybe if I had more things to do, that I wouldn't have time to be lazy. And then I'd, that wouldn't work out. So maybe if I have less things to do and I have just one thing to focus on. But none of it was working because it was all the wrong solution to the wrong problem. Uh, so I can look back and I can see that now. Like, oh, oh, wow. So that's, I guess that's what was going on. So now all of a sudden I find myself like doing things. Like all of a sudden, like today, like preparing the notes for this episode, I must've like spent like three and a half hours just kind of like meticulously looking over things and going, do I want to talk about that? I want to talk about that. What, you know, like, and like putting in a level of thought that I wasn't putting into things before. Uh, maybe a level is the wrong word, but a type of thought. There was an, the, an organized calmness to the way that I was working today. Whereas before everything felt like an emergency, a rush, like everything was always on fire, which makes sense. I was always trying to catch up to something. I was always trying to use willpower to battle physiology. Uh, another, the uh, second part of this, that's, that made a, this made a huge difference. This may be a, a little TMI in the sense that not like I'm going to tell you something <laughs> gross or personal uh, or grossly personal, but just you may not care about this detail, but I think the numbers are important to make this kind of make sense. Typically, since I've been on this healthier sleep cycle, I've been going to bed at 1 or 1.30. And then waking up, I'm a, I'm a night owl, so I always have been. 1 or one thirty, and then waking up about 10.30. In the last week, I, I don't remember what started it, but I started going to bed at midnight instead, which usually means like falling asleep at like 12.30. So like I said before, I usually spend like half hour in bed, like finishing watching something on TV or something. But I'm getting in bed. I'm getting prepared. Turning off the lights, like putting the phone away like this um, time for sleep is coming. That half hour is really important. And then shifting that other half hour to being asleep by 1230, start waking up at nine or 930 or 10. It depends on how well I sleep that night. But just that difference of that half hour to an hour on top of paying off my sleep debt, it's like I'm a different person. It's like all of a sudden I have myself back. I have, I'm, I'm fully productive again. I'm able to do all of the things that I was doing before. You know, like when I, when I had that low energy, it was like, sometimes it felt like at best I was getting an hour of work done every day. And I mean like creative work, not on top of client work and stuff like that. Uh, but now all of a sudden I'm getting more and more done. I'm, I'm finding, uh, like the other day. I had been doing something on the computer for like two hours inside and I went outside and I was reading and kind of extensively taking notes of this book 
And I got up and started walking around. And usually like when I would get up and walk around on a break from working, I would feel like the tiredness in my eyes and my brain. I feel, I feel sapped. It's like taking the break was like a way to hope to regain some energy. But instead this was the reverse. I found that I went to go on this break after like four hours of like steady work that I was energized and that I was raring to go and to do more and not in a speedy way, but just in the like controlled normal way. And that taking this break was actually just a moment to rest. So it was it, like everything reversed again. And I'd been finding myself getting more and more hours of work done every day. So like going through this whole thing with the note process that I'm going to talk about again later has been great to coincide with this like mental energy return. It's just fantastic. So I don't know, I guess maybe if I were to give you any advice, number one is huge advice. This is not a maybe. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're screwing yourself. You really are. You're going to pay for it. You will. And it sucks. It sucks bad. And it takes a long time to get out of it. I am at best, like maybe three weeks into this. I may still have like another week until I near normal, but I'm getting back there, getting back there. And the second thing I would say is try and see what happens if you wake up a half hour earlier, go to bed half hour earlier. Just see what that one shift does. It's so weird. There's something psychological about it. You know, because the, when the dog and I used to walk on the other schedule, we would leave at about noon and come back at about 1.30. So I think the passage of time and, and the time of day had a lot to do with my perception of the day. So I'd come back at like 1.30 and I'd eat, so I wouldn't really get started on anything till like 2. Which means that like at 4.30 or 5, when it's like nearing time, or I'm like, all right, maybe just start thinking about eating some dinner. I got to break up my work time. But now, like when we get up earlier, for some reason, that half hour enables it, it, it ends up meaning it did something to trim something off the morning. And I don't know what it is yet. And I'm not going to question it. And what I mean by that is instead of getting out at 1130, which is you know, that half hour earlier and returning at one, somehow, I don't know what time we're leaving the house, but we're coming back like at noon every day. Somehow, like I, 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 I shifted everything by a half hour, but somehow again, like an hour. I don't know how it happened. Maybe I was just moving really slowly in the morning. I don't know. But we're getting back before noon. Uh, you know, like sometimes just five minutes before noon. One day I woke up really a lot of, it was the day I had to take him to the vet because we had to be there at 930. So we got back and I got a whole bunch of stuff done. And I was like, man, I did a lot of stuff today. And I looked at my watch, expecting to be near the end of the day. And it was 1215. That blew me away. Starting to understand why morning people like mornings. I don't think I'll ever be a morning person because my body just like literally, I, I don't have that chronotype. I have the night owl chronotype. No matter what I do, I always tr push myself to try to stay up later. All right, let's get into some of this other stuff. I got some really interesting stuff in the media center this week. It's what I'm unofficially calling the, what did I watch? What did I listen to? Uh, what did I read this week? section of this, of the show. 
So do I want to do that in that order? I guess I decided I want to do this in this order. I'm going from the level of severe severity or the level of depth, I guess. I went from bigger to smaller. So what did I read this week? I finished reading Ubik or Ubik. Depends. I think Ubik is probably correct because it's supposed to be abbreviated form of ubiquity. But Ubik is a science fiction novel, mob novel, novel, yes, and a novel, a novel by Phil K. Dick. Uh, Phil K. Dick, who wrote uh, Androids Dream of Electric, Two Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was made into the movie Blade Runner. He also wrote Minority Report. He wrote Total Recall. He wrote a lot of stuff that was made into movies. Ubik has yet to be made into a movie. Apparently, Michel Gondry was trying to do it. And uh, he couldn't work it out. He had to end up bailing on the project, which is a bummer. But he said that he couldn't get us. I love, I love that he said this. He said, I stopped because I couldn't get together a script that, that suited the book. In other words, like he wanted to do the book justice and he couldn't get a script that would do it. I can understand that. This is a, it's such a unique book. This is my first Philip K. Dick, which is funny because I've owned, um, a scanner darkly, which is also, was also made into a movie and I've owned do Android stream of electric sheep. And I think one other of his books for like six years and just have never got around to picking them up. And then here I pick up Ubik and read it. And Ubik is like, I don't know, like it was on. Kindle Unlimited. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to read that. So here's, I own three of his books and I end up, the first one I end up reading is one of the ones that, that I, I don't even own. Ah, uh, when I said the show was going to be different, I don't know how to talk about books like this sometimes because there's so much in this that if I were to tell you about it, it doesn't necessarily spoil it. You know, it's not like, it's not like a murder mystery. Like, well, I guess at points it can be like one, but it's not like that, you know, like, oh, there's that one big surprise, you know, like uh, usual suspects, right? You could ruin that movie for someone. But there are things in here that if I talk about it, it takes some of the pleasure out of reading this book because it is. In the, in the realm of science fiction is such a unique book. And now having read this, I could tell I'm going to be a Philip K. Dick fan because I can tell by the way this book is written that this is how he writes in general. And I know at certain points in his career, he was like a speed freak. <laughs> like he would literally just sit and write these books and just write them in like one session. And some of the books, like people's, like the ideas are really good, but the book is not that great. And I could see that. But this is, this is considered, from what I could tell after reading it and looking around, this is considered one of his great books. And it is a great book. Essentially, it is about a world of normies like us and psychics um, or size, which uh, takes up kind of like two categories. There are the telepaths who can kind of read each other's, uh, read other people's minds and uh, precogs who could see the future. And then a third group that are called, uh, inertials and inertials are like anti-size. 
Like if you, if you have someone who's a precog and you put them in a room with an inertial, that person being in the room suddenly makes the precog unable to see into the future. Or if somebody has telepathy, you put them in the room and now all of a sudden they can't read people's minds. So there are these corporations kind of in battle. There's a corporation that rents uh, a size to people to, you know, corporate espionage. And then you have, uh, God, what is the word? It's a P. I can't remember the name of the, the type of business that they do. Prudence. Prudence organization, which is our main character, Joe Chip, works for a prudence organization. And the prudence organization supplies inertials so that people can protect their intellectual property from being in a mind red. That's, that's the essential setup for this world. Oh, and there's this whole thing about half-life. When you are dying, you, if, you, if they can kind of catch you before you completely check out, they can put you into cold pack and then they somehow, I don't know what the process is after cold pack, but they, they're able to store a body and store up the remaining amount of life in it. And these people live in half-life. So like, they're still like conscious they're like in some kind of dream state. And then they can be brought out every once in a while. So for example, the head of the prudence organization that Joe Chip works for, his wife is in half-life. And as part of her will, he was supposed, he's supposed to consult with her every time they have a big business decision. So he has to go to the mortuary and they take her out. Uh, they don't take her out of the, uh, you know, they don't take her body out physically, but they take her container out. And then they have like this radio <laughs> type thing and he can talk to her. Like they wake, they bring her consciousness out of half-life and he can talk to her and she can give him advice. And then she goes back in and there's only a limited time that that can last. I don't know. I don't remember, or I don't even know if he explains whether that's determined by how much, you know, like how sick they were when they died, or if it's just everybody has the same amount of half-life available. But anyways, those two things are like the structure of this story. But the book is so, so much more than that, and so different than that. Those, rather than being plot points, which is why I shared them with you, are more like circumstances of the story. Um, there are things you need to know, that th things that come into play about the story, but they don't, they're not what the story's about. Let's put it that way. Um, it's hard to actually say what the story's about, which, which is a strange thing to say about a book that I said was excellent, but it's kind of the point. The book is very existential. The book itself at, at points is existential, even about itself. It continually keeps changing the rules. It continually keeps changing what it seems like it's about. You know, like it starts out, it seems like it's about science fiction. You know, this world with the size and the telepaths and these companies. And then it seems like, oh, you know what? Maybe is this a book about consumerism? Maybe this is a metaphor about consumerism. We'll get into why that happens later because it's one of the more interesting parts of the beginning of the book. And then it seems like it's like, it's a, like some kind of psychosexual drama. Like, oh, is this about uh, this woman, Pat, and him like living together? Is this about sex? And then it seems like it's a murder mystery. And then it seems like it's this, hmm, I don't know. Like it just keeps changing the terms on you. 
this kind of like time travel. Yeah, it's so hard to put your finger on and it's on purpose. So Ubik is like this product that at the beginning of every chapter, you get an advertisement for Ubik. And Ubik is something different every time. One time it's beer, one time it's coffee, one time it's salad dressing, antacid, shaving cream. At one point, maybe even God. And that one is very interesting because Ubik, the product in the book, is everywhere yet elusive, which one could say is a metaphor for God in a way. Uh, dangerous if misused. Also a metaphor for at least the, the idea or the concept of God put into the hands of fanatics is quite dangerous. So this idea of things that define meaning, it's, it's utterly fascinating. It's what makes the book so incredible. Uh, one thing I found interesting, I had to look and see what year the book was, was published because there are parts where there is shifting in time. Um, that doesn't spoil anything because it doesn't even adequately, adequately describe what's going on, but there's a point where things are shifting in time. And anytime something shifts in time in a book back and forth to different points in time, I think of Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, right? Well, there's twice in, in this book where Joe Chip says, so it goes, which is like the catchphrase from Slaughterhouse-Five. This book and Slaughterhouse-Five were both published in 1969. I couldn't find out what book, what month this book was published, but Slaughterhouse-Five was uh, published in March, so near the beginning of the year. So there's a good chance that this book came after, and there's a good chance that his mention of So It Goes is actually a nod to Kurt Vonnegut and to Slaughterhouse-Five in particular. So I enjoy that, loving Kurt Vonnegut as much as I do. If you didn't listen to the sort of ode to Kurt Vonnegut that I did, uh, go back. I think it's like at most 10 episodes ago. All right. What else do I have to say about Ubik? Ubik. Ubik, Ubik. Uh, Actually, something else related to Slaughterhouse-Five, there is a connection between the two, it seems. and World War II. And that may be endemic of their generation. I assume that Phil K. Dick and Kurt Vonnegut were about the same age. In Slaughterhouse-Five, World War II plays a huge role. Once again, this is talked about in, in my Kurt Vonnegut episode, because Kurt Vonnegut himself was a prisoner of war in World War II. Uh, World War II comes up here in Ubik because the time... I'm trying to figure out how to word this without kind of ruining some of those concepts that I said would give you pleasure. These time shift things, the furthest that they go back is 1939, which is the beginning of World War II. And there's a particular scene where he's talking to a cab driver who is from 1939, and the cab driver throws out the N-word, and basically a whole bunch of uh, anti-Semitic stuff. So it does seem like in some way, to me, there's a connection to this. I actually, let me tell you a quote first. That'll make this make sense. There's a quote where he says, the past is latent, 
is submerged, but still there, capable of rising to the surface once the later imprinting vanished. Now think about them in the context of World War II and the ugliness that kind of made the Nazi movement happened. That hatred, that fear, that, you know, the stuff that's been happening in our country recently, this xenophobia. The past is latent, is submerged, but still there, capable of rising to the surface. So this idea of like, there's this latent form of ugliness underneath. I think that's why he chose 1939 as the, the furthest place that the regression can go. Because in some way, he seems to be hinting at that. I don't think that's the meaning of the book. I just think it's a meaning in the book. I don't know that there is one meaning to this book. I mentioned consumerism earlier. So there's this hilarious and frustrating aspect to this book that it takes place in 1992, which is suspicious in and of itself because it's written in 1969. This is supposed to be 20, was that 22, 23 years later? But the difference of technological advancement is ridiculous for 23 years. So you have to even call into question whether this even took place in 1992 or whether Phil K. Dick is messing with you. By the way, Phil K. Dick, not the kind of author that you want to just refer to by his last name. That's why I continually say Phil K. Dick or maybe PKD. Because <laughs> I don't want to talk 20 minutes about Dick. Uh -huh. <laughs> the... That made me lose my train of thought. The appliances in 1992, or this, what supposedly is 1992, everything is cost money. Everything has like a coin slot. And I mean, everything. There's one point where he like, uh, he has to negotiate with his coffee machine in his house and his apartment because it wants a dime. It's uh, five cents for the coffee, I think, and five cents for the cream. And he's arguing with it. He says, it's not cream, it's milk, which apparently would be a different price. So these are like AIs. The, all the appliances have AIs, but they all have coin slots, including his door. The door costs a nickel to go in and out of. Every time, if you want to leave, you need a nickel. If you want to come in, you need a nickel. And Joe Chip is broke. He never has money. So he gets into arguments with his door. And at one point, he tries to... Uh, remove the lock from the door and it's, it's it threatens to sue him so there's it, there's this hilarious aspect to it. this is like stuff in the beginning of the book and it's also kind of depressing because can you imagine living in that world and what it reminded me of is mr bean there is an episode of mr bean i actually think this thing shows up in more than one episode but there's a particular episode of mr bean I found the clip on YouTube, which I will put in the notes, but I did not bother to look up what episode this is from. But Mr. Bean is coming home. He's got like this television set and comes home to his like, it's like a tenement home. It's like a, he's living in like a very tiny, tiny apartment. And he comes in and he puts the box down and he goes to flip the light switch and nothing happens. There's no electricity. So then he puts his hand into his pocket and pulls out a coin. And then you hear the coin drop into something and then the lights come on. 
and you see on his wall, there is like a, I guess it's an electricity meter that accepts coins. So instead of getting an electricity bill, he has to pay for it. Kind of, it's like a payphone version of electricity. And I don't know if that was made up for the show or if that's something that actually existed in, in England at one point. I don't know. Someone will have to tell me that. But that's exactly what it reminded me of. Like, oh my God, I've seen this concept before. And that scene as well, thinking about that was really depressing to me when I watched that. And Mr. Bean usually makes me laugh pretty hard. In fact, one of the funniest things I've ever seen is a segment from a Mr. Bean episode where he, uh, accident where a guy accidentally takes his credit card, Mr. Bean's credit card and puts it into his wallet and he tries to steal the guy's wallet. Literally one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Anyhow, Ubik, pretty incredible book. Uh, there's one passage I'm going to read to you because it's just beautiful, but it's also endemic of the type of writing that you'll find in this book. But this old theory, didn't Plato think that something survived the decline, something inner not able to decay? The ancient dualism, body separated from soul, the body ending as Wendy did, and the soul out of its nest, the bird flown elsewhere. Maybe so, he thought. To be reborn again, as the Tibetan Book of the Dead says. It really is true. Christ, I hope so. Because in that case, we can all meet again. In, as in Winnie the Pooh, another part of the forest where the boy and his bear will always be playing. A category, he thought, imperishable, like all of us. We will all wind up with Pooh in a clearer, more durable new place. Isn't that beautiful? That struck me, like, pretty hard. That's, that's like something from the middle of the book. It's not like the last paragraph of the book. Okay, so that's uh, Ubik or Ubik, whichever you prefer. The album that I was listening to this week is Suvlaki by Slow Dive. Uh, this is an album from 1993. And this is a shoegaze album, which is one of my favorite styles of music. Um, I was actually not super familiar with Slow Dive. I know their name. Uh, for me, a lot of shoegaze stuff was like, every time I hear shoegaze, the first band I think of is My Bloody Valentine. Then I usually think of Ride. Slow Dive is also like, they're like one of the big three. Uh, excuse me, I burped. The, the words I would use to describe this, dreamy, ethereal, uh, narcotic, swirly. It's just swimming in reverb. And My Bloody Valentine is like that too, but My Bloody Valentine has like a kind of a viciousness to it that, that sometimes it turns on you. You know, the way that sometimes like, uh, if you, anybody out there plays guitar, sometimes reverb can turn on you and come back to growl at you. Um, so my buddy Valentine on the spectrum of shoegaze is more on the aggressive end. Slow dive on the, on the complete other end. This is like the, at times the songs are almost like hymns 
or lullabies. But they're also, they're, they're soaked with emotion, like so much emotion. And at times I, w- I, I could hear it and I was like, oh, this, this reminds me of Jesus of Mary Chain. Uh, the guitar at points would remind me of The Cure, the way that sometimes those Cure guitar lines just seem like they, they pull emotion out of your heart, like, like light, you know, like these rods of light coming out of your heart from these guitar lines. And uh, sometimes the melodies, uh, in particular, when the girl is singing, because they switch between the girl and the guy, uh, sometimes the melody reminded me of everything but the girl. So interesting album to kind of just put on and just kind of like drift off. It, I don't know. It's it's a it's a dream world, I guess, in some way. Maybe it's a good soundtrack to to Ubik. This dreamy, like, I don't this dreamy, transitory, shifting feeling. Uh, one of the big differences, too, between Slow Dive and My Bloody Valentine, I forgot to mention, and Ride, too, is for both of those bands, the vocals are kind of like more in the background. But with, with Slow Dive, they're more to the foreground. You can actually hear the singing more. That's a big difference. Um, it's a super cool album. You should really, if you, if you got into like that, um, that early 2000s electronica phase, you know, with like M83 and Empire of the Sun and, uh, not really electronica, but MGMT, you got into like that stuff. You will probably dig Suvlaki because a lot of that stuff in some way is coming from slow dive. Uh, maybe not specifically, but like that whole shoegaze movement is that's electronic shoegaze as far as I'm concerned. And this is like guitar shoegaze, or if you want to call it original shoegaze. So check it out. Um, I don't know if I remind you guys, but, uh, you can, you can follow the playlist on Spotify. If I remember to put it in the show notes, I will. Uh, I guess I have to, yeah. <laughs> no, I said it. The, I just throw, every time I have an album that I discuss on here, I throw it in that playlist. So eventually it's going to be this huge, epic, weird, weird playlist. Because just thinking about Slow Dive next to Halcest, which is actually uh, also shoegaze related. Halcest was this band, or is this band, that is, uh, what do they call it? Black gaze, which is a mix between black metal and shoegaze. So to have those two songs, you know, like a song from one and the other in a row, in a shuffle, would be really interesting. I like kind of schizophrenic playlists. I don't know about you. I like normal ones too, but kind of schizophrenic ones. Like when I first got my iPad, my iPad, my iPod, wrong vowel. When I first got an iPod, my favorite thing was shuffle. I stuffed that thing with every album I have and my music tastes all over the board and I would just shuffle. And some of the coolest things would happen with shuffle. So I do love the album experience, but uh, being able to throw a ton of albums into something and hit shuffle, I also love that. It's like a, it's like a madman's radio station. It's pretty fun. You've, you realize some kind of interesting, uh, similarities between things trying to think 
there was, I can't remember what song it was. There was some Motown song. And then the next thing that came after Motown was Joy Division. And I noticed that they had kind of the same rhythm. And that kind of blew me away. I was like, whoa, these two songs fit together. So those juxtapositions can be really fun. Uh, okay, let's talk about uh, podcasts. I don't talk about podcasts very often on here, or at least I haven't. That's going to change. I don't have a ton to say about this one, except that you should listen to it. This is uh, Wizard and the Bruiser. You're only going to be able to listen to this on Spotify. It's a Spotify exclusive. But uh, Wizard and Bruiser is on Last Podcast Network. So you have the LPN guys, that are the last podcast on the left guys. They have LPN, which is their network. These are two of their friends. And actually, interesting enough, I found Wizards and the Bruiser before. I knew what last podcast on the left was. So these guys actually led me to last podcast on the left. And what they do is is two guys, um, Jake and Holden, and they talk about nerdy stuff. Um, they pick a, but they do it from like a, in a way, it, it's similar to how stuff works. You know how stuff, uh, they say, how do, on how stuff works, they'll say, how do, how does bee pollination work? And then they'll do the research and come in and tell you. That's kind of similar to this, but they'll say like, we're going to do an episode on One Piece. And they'll go watch a bunch of One Piece and do research on the history of One Piece and who created One Piece. And then they'll come in and do an episode and tell you everything they learned about One Piece. And then the next episode, uh, might be about uh, a comic book. The next one might be about a video game. You know, like they could do an episode on Borderlands. This episode is on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I forget how much I love this movie and how, to this day, how incredible this movie is. That's why you need to listen to this episode. Not only to remind you of that, because it is an incredible movie, but the reason it still holds up is because of the work that they put into it at the time. Uh, first of all, it's groundbreaking. This is not the reason that it holds up in time, but first of all, it's groundbreaking and memorable because of all the licensing that Spielberg was somehow able to get to happen. You know, having Warner Brothers characters and Disney characters in a movie together with Betty Boop and, you know, pulling all these characters from different intellectual properties and getting them all into one movie that like never happens except for like, I think that happens space jam, maybe, or is that just Looney Tunes? I don't know. I've never watched it. The new one or the old one anyways, that's what I always remembered about it being, being groundbreaking, but the actual stuff that they do to make the movie, which they talk about in detail in this episode is even more incredible than that. Because uh, like uh, Baby Huey, you know, with the cigar, there's, there's things where they had to have mechanical uh, devices doing stuff, moving objects. Because if you remember, he's a cartoon, but he's moving a real cigar. So they had to have a robot arm to move the cigar. And then they animated over the robot arm. So they had to create these physical things because the, the two things about Roger Rabbit, they could have done probably to some degree computer graphics back then, but they didn't. Instead, they did traditional animation, which as far as I understand, traditional animation would mean hand-drawn cells and then practical effects. 
So they made all these things happen for real in the real world. And one of the most extraordinary parts of this episode is when they explain, this is something I knew, but I forgot. There's a scene, I think it's near the beginning, where Roger Rabbit is being interviewed. Not interviewed, he's being interrogated. And there's a lamp, a hanging lamp, and somehow the lamp gets smacked. And so the lamp is moving around the room. So like there's this spotlight kind of moving around the room, you know, hitting, it's this moving spotlight through the room. Well, here's Roger Rabbit, who is an animated cell. You know, it's like literally drawn on top of the film. So that light is not hitting him because he's not there. But they, using traditional animation, went in and animated those shadows as they went across him so that it's seamless. And it looks like he's actually there. Because traditionally, when they would do movies before where they put animations into live action, they would just draw them over the top, but they wouldn't consider it lighting. They just stood out. But in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they worked to make all of the characters look as if they're actually in the scene. And the amount of work that that added to the project is tremendous, but that's why it holds up still today. And that's why it's still a mind-blowing film to watch. And it's still a fun movie. It's still so awesome. It's such a great script. It's really... It's uh, By the way, did you know it's based on a book? There's a book called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? By, I can't remember the guy's first name. But hilariously, his name is Wolf. So Wolf wrote about a rabbit. I've been sitting on this book for like six months going, I want to read that. I want to read that. And then I listen to this episode. I'm like, okay, I guess I need to read that. So maybe not this week, but next week I might get to reading that. But go listen to this Wizard and the Bruiser episode, then go watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I might do that tonight. Hmm. Uh, next one. So Phil Ford, over one of the guys over at Weird Studies, recommended this podcast once before called Cult Experiences in the Home. That I, I remember thinking, oh, I should go check that out. And then I don't know if I ever did or not, but uh, I dig this podcast. And I think in some way, uh, him, him and I have a kinship in the sense that it's one person talking. Doesn't sound like he's scripted like me, although he's far more articulate than me, or he's removing all of his ums. He sounds very much, he doesn't sound like he's reading, but he sounds, yeah, he just sounds smarter than me. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And it helps that he has a British accent. Uh, what the heck is that noise? One thing about having a microphone on, you could hear noises that you normally wouldn't hear. Some, some kind of noise outside. Hopefully it's not a lion. Maybe it's a T-Rex. Throwback to last week. Uh, this episode's interesting because typically, I've only listened to three episodes of this show so far, but typically, as the name says, he deals with like occult-type a, a topics. Like he has a, an interesting episode on hauntings. And it's kind of, his perspective is very philosophical. 
sorry, I'm hearing that noise again, his perspective is very philosophical in the sense that he's not, most of your occult slash paranormal shows go down storytelling, you know, like uh, the story of this cryptid or the story of this or whatever. That's not what this is. He's actually taking ideas and examining them philosophically, which is kind of, ironically, what I want to do when I talk about these type of topics as well, is kind of dig into the, the thinking of them and the meaning of them. Like the haunting one, he doesn't really spend that much time talking about ghosts. What he talks about instead is a concept of a ghost, which I find far more interesting. I gotta go find out what the noise is. So I figured out what the noise is. Apparently it is my chair. It just sounds different through the microphone. So this episode that I'm going to recommend from A Cold Experiments in a Home is number 18, Social Class, Identity, and Plato's Cave. And in this one, as far as I remember, there's nothing that I would even classify in this episode as dealing with a cult. But he does talk about the idea of work. Um, it's actually a really interesting examination of class, uh, like the difference of how lower class people, uh, hit, or people grow up in lower class households, uh, lower economic class, that is how they view work compared to people who grow up in the middle class and of course how, how different they are from people who grew up in the upper class. And I guess he's talking about the story of his girlfriend. And she says to him at one point, like you, we need to talk. You really need to take more interest in my work. And that kind of like, uh, threw him for a loop because he grew up in a lower income, a lower, lower class house and she grew up in middle class. So for him, the concept of work was never something that you're like, well, I want people to be interested in my work. Work was always just something, something you have to do. It's just something you have to do. You know, it's like, I don't want to talk about work because it's that thing that I have to do. But for people who grow up in the middle class, it's something, it's like a point of pride. Like, you know, like this somebody who is information scientist. That's like a career, right? So they want that. That's their thing. So they want people to be interested in that. But you know, like if you, you're a garbage man or you're a, a carpenter or you're a police officer, maybe that actually a police officer, probably a lifestyle, but the other two, maybe they're just words, you know, like you just go to them. They're not like this thing, like I need you to take interest in this. And he kind of talks about that. And I relate to that too, because I didn't grow up middle-class. So to me, work has always also been something I have to do. He makes this statement in here. This the reason that basically I put this in here is a statement that kind of hit me pretty hard. He says that he feels like his life was more difficult and more full of, of miseries because he was unable to associate with a vocation that he had lived his whole life, uh, getting jobs, but like the idea of the, the fact that he didn't know like what he was, you know, like, what am I going to be? You know, you, if you are 15 years old and you decide you're going to be, uh, 
a computer scientist and you dedicate your life to computers and computers to all that you go to school for all that your life is more enjoyable than somebody who goes i don't know i don't know and just continues to kind of move through life not having a vocational identity and that does bring more uh misery into your life because the world is not made for you not made for me you know my my vocational identity now is associated with like this with the podcast this is how i associate myself the things that i do when i always say client work why do i never talk about that because it's work i have to do it's not my it's not me and if i had enough money i would never do it again i don't hate it i just don't care about it I care about it in the sense I need to do it right and I need to uh, do a good job and I need to make money. But if I didn't have to make the money, then I wouldn't do it. Like, I don't You guys can find somebody else uh, who's probably more into it than I am. But I'm glad to have it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to pay the bills that I do. So, interesting episode because I feel like it's a, if I were to compare that to the name of the show and to the hauntings episode it's a bit of a derivative but the philosophical aspects there especially when he starts talking about plato's cave i really like the way he talks about plato's cave so go check it out give him some love that type of con that type of content is so niche and it's not the kind of stuff that's going to get like you know a ton of advertisements everybody oh this is on the top of apple Podcasts because it's not mainstream type of thing, but it's so good and it's so quality. I really, really like it. I wish I had written down his name so I could say his name right now. Um, maybe I did. Did I? Maybe I did. Let's see if I did. What is his name? Duncan Barford. I did write it down. Look at me. Look at the big brain on Brad. All right. Last thing in the media center. Uh, don't worry. When we get into the other stuff at the end of the show, it's not as big as we normally go. So we shouldn't go too far over two hours. <laughs> two hours is becoming the standard, isn't it? The last thing I want to say, I don't really have anything to say about this because I've only watched one episode, but I watched it last night and I liked it. So I'm going to throw it in here. I finally checked out Clarice, the new TV show, uh, which is based off of characters from Silence of the Lambs. This takes place a year after the events of Silence of the Lambs. And uh, it's kind of dealing, it's, it's Clarice Starling dealing with being an FBI agent for a year now. Remember, she was a, a recruit in that book slash movie. And this is, this is her as an actual FBI unit. And what you find out what she's been doing for a year and you, she's dealing with some post-traumatic stress syndrome and uh, as you would. Because remember, she was almost killed. And it's, it's, the one episode was done really well. It's kind of cool. I'm curious to see how it's going to play out because uh, it takes place in 1992. So, uh, that you know, that's before cell phones were ubiquitous. Speaking of ubiqu, before cell phones were everywhere, before uh, cops were looking up everything on the internet. So watching crimes being solved in 1992, but like being filmed now, I'm curious how deep they're going to go and how well they're going to capture the era. There's one scene where she's like wearing a, 
this sweatshirt and she has her hair. I was like, man, her hair is really kind of a weird style she's got going on with her hair now. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, no, it's not. If it was 1992, the hairstyle she has right there is 1992 hairstyle. So I'm curious to see how they're going to I love things that are set back. And, you know, typically like 50s, 60s, 80s, those are really popular. Um, but I want to see stuff that's like in the 90s or the 2000s. I love, that's one of the reasons I love that other show, Cold Case. Uh, because it's like time travel show. It's, it's almost like a quantum leap, but a cop show is quantum leap and there's no actual time travel. But, you know, you're seeing those eras and the most interesting ones are the ones that are not that long ago that you remember enough of them, but you also forget enough of that era. But it's kind of fun to watch someone try to recreate it, which is different than watching something from the era, right? Because you can get lost in that, but seeing somebody recreate it, I don't know, something about it is different. So I'm, I'm looking forward to watching more of Clarice. I think I have 12 more episodes. I think there's only 13 episodes. And if you don't have uh, Paramount Plus, guess what? It's free on Pluto. I think it's on Pluto TV. If not, it's on Tubi, which is where I'm watching it. On Pluto, I'm pretty sure. One of those two. So, and and I don't mean like on the streaming channels that they have on there. It's in the on-demand section. Just a little secret, a little secret for you. Hmm. Running out of tea. My voice is getting raspy. Oh, good thing I brought this LaCroix. Okay, let's talk about some online stuff. Uh, I mentioned last week that uh, YouTube has been throwing some different kind of stuff at me. Threw me this Realm Moore video. Threw me that Natalie Lynn video. This week it threw me a video by Savannah Brown, who is someone, after I started watching this video, I started realizing that I might have seen one of her videos once a long time ago because her voice is kind of raspy. Um, and I remember it. Um, I like raspy voices. Um, which is why I like my voice right now. <laughs> the thing that's, uh, interesting about this, I might, I don't even think I'm going to talk about the content of this video, except to say that, uh, I love the way that this girl talks. She is so articulate and so intelligent and so, um, introspective that I really, really, I'm going to watch more of her videos. Like I, I subscribed to her channel after watching this and I'm going to burp. Okay. What it made me think though, is I started thinking, so we've got Savannah Brown. Emma Chamberlain, who have been watching some stuff from here and there, as Sorella Moore, Natalie Lynn. Uh, I started thinking about how many of the videos that I'm getting put are these young, articulate women. And I was, I'm wondering, is YouTube starting to become a hotbed for this? They're like, have, have, what is the wording that I'm trying to say here? Female voices have been struggling for a long time to be heard. And I'm wondering if the place where it's going to be heard is going to be young women on YouTube. 
is this where that's going to happen? Is that where it's going to change? Is that where in some way, like the, the ultimate dream of feminism is going to happen? Uh, because, well, let me, let me make an interesting thing here. There's this interview that Emma Watson did after Beauty and the Beast, when she did the movie Beauty and the Beast. And the interview, I don't know who it's with, but it, it was following, I believe it was a Vanity Fair photo shoot that she did. And the Vanity Fair photo shoot, uh, in one of the shots, she has like this vest thing on, but you can see a little bit more of her boob that like she's topless under this thing, but you can't see like nipple or anything like that. It's Vanity Fair, but you can see part of her boobs. And everybody made like at the time, this huge deal about this. Oh, Emma Watson says that she's a feminist, but then she's showing her boobs. First of all, number one, girl doesn't have like triple D's. So like part of her boob showing is not really that much skin, um, which is not a criticism of her anatomy in any way or judgment of it anyway. I'm just making a point that it's not like, you know, if I told you like half of somebody's boob is hanging out of their shirt and they have really big boobs, that's a big difference than someone who has smaller boobs because one is just more, you know, like there's, you're putting more out there. You're making more of a choice to show something. So I don't really think the picture is really, I mean, the picture, I wouldn't even put, say the picture is erotic. She's a very attractive woman, but like the picture is more like art housey. There's this weird, uh, like Victorian kind of vibe to it. And the makeup kind of makes her look almost robotic. It's not like a sexy, sexy picture. Okay. That's my point. But people still made this big deal of it. And it's not like, you know, it's not like she, she posed for Playboy. I'm a, for Playboy or Hustler or something like that. You know, it's just an arty cover for Vanity Fair. I don't even think it was the cover photo. So anyways, people are making this big deal about it. How could she be a feminist when she's doing this? Which is stupid in the beginning. I mean, uh, from the beginning of the argument. But in the interview, Emma Watson says, she goes, she's, she like almost loses her shit kind of like she, she gets very animated. She said that like, it shows the fundamental misunderstanding people have of what feminism is. That feminism is about giving women a choice. It's like freedom. You know, it's, it's not something that women can stick for women to beat other women with. Like you're not feminist enough. It just means you choose to do what you want. Then you have the choice that someone else isn't making the choice for you. That's all it means. And I think about that in the context of of this whole YouTube thing, because the dream, the ultimate dream in, you know, my male perspective of feminism, which is obviously going to be different. it seems like, especially if I'm going to take like what Emma Watson says there on face value, that the ultimate dream is that a women can, women whose voice, who want their voices heard can just turn on a camera and speak and have their voices heard. That that's the ultimate dream. Like how they choose to do that. They choose to be heard. So they put up a video, it's heard. And that, that to some, in some way fulfills part of that. Obviously there's a whole bunch about equality and, and pay equality and, and all of those things that's more complicated. But I mean, on the course, on the most core base level, wouldn't it be interesting if YouTube 
a place that's focused on visuals was a place that their voices were first really truly being popularized for being heard. Um, I'm not articulating them that well. What I'm saying is even though YouTube is visually driven, it's dramatically different than what's happening right now with so many women on TikTok and maybe still happening on Instagram, but definitely like during the real peak of Instagram. Um, and this is not a judgment, but a lot of the TikTok stuff is booty shaking. Like getting a lot of likes, shaking your booty. I see. And like, uh, you know, YouTube has these shorts thing, which are basically just people taking their TikTok stuff and put it on YouTube. And it pops up and I keep seeing it. And I'm like, what is that? And then like, it starts to move or something like, or I'll do it on Instagram and starts to move. It's just like some like 17 year old girl shaking her booty. I'm like, dude, I'm a 44 year old man. I can't be looking at this. You know, they'll put this in front of me. Once again, not a judgment of the girls. They should, they can do whatever the hell they want. But the, it's similar to Instagram. Kind of, I remember this period of Instagram where female artists on Instagram were getting a lot of followers by putting up pictures in their underwear. And the reason I think it's fundamentally different, like I said, this has no judgment about that, but it's fundamentally different because the girls, it seems from my perspective, the girls weren't putting up pictures of themselves in their underwear because they wanted to put up pictures of themselves in their underwear. They were putting up pictures of themselves in their underwear because they wanted people to look at their art. So come for the sexy, sexy, stay for the art. So in a way they were manipulated the male gaze, which is more power to them, manipulating the male gaze, but for a different purpose. But the YouTube thing is different because there is no other purpose. It's yes, you're going to watch this video of a young girl um, who obviously a lot of the girls that are getting a lot of attention on YouTube are attractive, but there's, there's nothing else. That's it. This is the video. This is me talking. This is me expressing. This is my voice being heard now. I'm not pulling you in with one thing to direct you to something else. And I think what the fundamental difference there is not a, um, a moral judgment or anything like that. The fundamental difference is a step has been removed. And I think that's very exciting because that to me seems to hint at some sort of progress. I don't know. You know, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but that's just what I thought about when I was watching this video. And I hope that's true. I really do. Because uh, I think it's really stupid <laughs> that we judge people's intelligence by uh, what genitals they have. Like, what does that have to do with anything? It really doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I've known a lot of dudes that weren't very smart. <laughs> and so having having a, a dick and balls sh certainly didn't change that. So this, this idea of inequality based on, based on body parts is a little bit weird, a little bit weird. I think, I think we're hopefully maturing past that, um, because it's just stupid. It's time that human beings stopped being stupid, at least as a group. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is an episode of Tim Ferriss show. This is a uh, episode 527.
it's an episode of the random show, which is like a show inside of a show. Um, the random show is any time that Tim Ferriss and Kevin Rose get together. And sometimes, most of the time, Tim gets a little tipsy. <laughs> and that's when he gets tipsy on like some alcoholic kombucha. And uh, you can hear at a certain point, I love it. Um, because he's, he's a human being. Hear it. Uh, I like that. He's giving a little peek into him. His uh, personality with his friend. You know, this conversation, Tim's always very focused. He's, he's cordial and he jokes around with his guests. But these ones, these random shows, he's more uh, loose. He's, and he's more what I imagine he's, he's really like in real life. He's joking around, sometimes making jokes that maybe not are even funny, but like leaving it in, like he's, he's just being himself, it seems like. Obviously, I don't know him, so I can't say that. But the reason I bring this one up is one of the things that they talk about here is something that I actually heard before in an earlier Tim Ferriss episode, which is uh, episode 521 with Dr. Andrew Huberman. I may have talked about that on the podcast because it had some stuff about sleep. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Huberman mentioned in that episode is upping the daily intake of omega-3s until you're getting a thousand milligrams of EPA. So typically quality um, omega-3 or uh, fish oil. Actually, I think it's specifically fish oil that has these two because you can get uh, omega-3s from vegetables. You don't like uh, not vegetables, but... Uh, chia seeds have omega-3s, but I don't think they have EPA and DHA. I think only fish oil has both. I could be wrong on that. Once again, not an expert. But anyways, upping the omegas until you get 1,000 milligrams of EPA. And Tim brings it up in this episode with Kevin saying that that and something else, I can't remember what the other thing was, but two things have been Seem, seemingly transforming his sleep. Um, so having heard it before and hearing it again, and of course me doing anything to improve my sleep, I was like, I'm in. I'm going to, I'm, I gotta get some quality fish oil. And the fish oil I had before these pills, I had found them on Labdoor, which is a great research site. Um, they test out a whole bunch of products. Found them a few years ago. I've been taking them since. And then recently I found out that uh, they have an enteric coating on them which is enteric coating is supposed to, something that has enteric coating means it doesn't dissolve in your stomach. So it moves through your stomach acid and it doesn't dissolve till it gets to your gut. There's two reasons you do that. Either the ingredients inside um, will be ruined by the harshness of stomach acid, or you're going to get optimal um, absorption in the gut instead of the stomach. And I think in the case of fish oil, it's the absorption factor. But I found out these enteric coatings were not dissolving in my gut because they were coming in like they went out or backwards, coming out like they went in. So basically I wasn't getting any fish oil. So what I started doing actually is I just cut the pill and squirt the fish oil in my mouth, which uh, is the reason, not the reason you get fish oil pills. Usually you don't want to taste it. So I decided if I'm going to do this, I got to do the research. One of my got to, you know, that's the hardest thing. When, oh, take this, take that. Which one? 
which one do I take? Which one's good? Which one is the best? You know, like, so that's why you listen to episodes like this, because they're going to throw out suggestions, right? And you know, Tim Ferriss does the research. So when I listened to the Huberman episode, I had actually done research on fish oil and I went to Labdoor and I found one, which is a WHC Unicardio 1000. And I had saved that and it had been sitting in my bin, you know, like the save for later on Amazon and it sit there ever since I listened to that episode. Uh, I looked at it again and I was like, oh, this, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't have a thousand milligrams of EPA. It only has 665. Okay. Uh, guess I can't get that one. Well, what about the, the two that Tim says he has, right? So Tim says he's got Nordic Naturals, Naturals Pro Mega and Thorn Research uh, Super EPA. He bought two. Well, Nordic Naturals only has 650 and Thorn only has 425. So if you're going to get the WHC or the Nordic Naturals, you have to take double the dosage, uh, which one of them would mean taking four pills a day. And that would put you at like 1,200 of EPA. I didn't want to do that because uh, it's also going to double the price, right? Because you're going to go through them twice as fast. And the thing with the thorn is you could double the, the thorn, but you're still not going to hit a thousand. You're still only going to be at 850. So one of the other things when, uh, in the episode, Tim says, hold on, let me go grab the, grab the ones that I got. So I can tell you what brands I got. And while he's gone, Kevin says, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess that he got Carlson's Carlson's or Carlson, no S Carlson wild caught. And I know that brand I've heard of them before. And as far as I know, all they make is fish oil and they have many different kinds you can get in bottles. At one point, when I found out that intricate coating thing was happening, I was like, I'm going to get in the bottle. I'll take it a spoonful. Then I know I'm getting it. And Carlson's is one of the ones I found. And wild caught, you know, there's no crap in it. They have high quality products. Everybody rates them high. And what's super cool is when you go to look at the pills, they have, uh, that's the best way to say it is they have many sizes. They have many different, you know, you can get one that's only going to give you 600. You get one that's going to give you 800. Many different ways to do it. So what I found was Carlson Maximum Omega 2000. And what these are going to do is, I forget if it's one or two pills that they prescribe that you take, but you're going to get 1250 of EPA and 500 of DHA. DHA is good to have too. You don't want to take just EPA because DHA is the stuff that's good for your brain. This is when they say omega-3 fish oil is good for your brain. It's because of the DHA. The EPA is the stuff that's good for your heart and apparently for your sleep. So that's what I'm going to order. I'm going to try that out. And uh, I'll let you know how it works. This little brief article that I ran across that on Reddit, super fascinating to me. Uh, so basically, it is about histamine and serotonin. So histamine being your body's response to something, to an allergic, you know, whether it's hay fever or like a peanut allergy or whatever, that your body floods with histamine to battle that allergy. Serotonin is the, it's the stuff that uh, regulates your mood, makes you feel good, right? So if you have low serotonin, you're going to be sad, depressed guy. So this is from a website called Lab Roots. Written by Annie Lennon. I'm going to read you two quotes from it. That'll pretty much give you a gist of the whole article. The 
first one, which my screen keeps scrolling past. I told you the notes were being done different this week. Okay. Upon further examination, the researchers found that the body's inflammatory response triggered the release of histamine in the brain, which then attached to inhibitory receptors on serotonin neurons and inhibited serotonin release. Further research is needed to see if these results translate over to humans, as humans have the same inhibitory receptors on serotonin neurons as mice. There is a reasonable chance that a similar pathway may exist in humans. If this is the case, the researchers say their findings could help diagnose depression by measuring histamine and serotonin levels in the brain, and findings could also help create novel treatments for depression that target histamine in the brain. Okay, so they were studying mice, and they found out that when there was histamine in the body, the histamine was attaching to the things that tell our body to release serotonin. So therefore, if you have a lot of histamine in your body, you're getting less serotonin, at least for mice. And as it says there, they need to check and make sure that it happens in humans, but we have similar uh, biology in that particular way. Now, what's fascinating about that, uh, beyond what they said, is, so I guess maybe I should clarify what they said. You might be able to learn more about diagnosing depression by not only measuring serotonin levels, but also by measuring histamine. So it may help with diagnosing depression. And because of that, there may be a way to attack histamine, to stop the histamine from attaching to the serotonin receptors, which would mean you're going to get more serotonin, which means that maybe you're not going to be as sad. So the question ultimately is, is there a connection between allergies and depression? That's my question. Does that mean that there's a connection between allergies and depression? Because what I want to know is this, what I would love to see is if you take uh, people who suffer from seasonal allergies, do they as a group have more rates of depression than people who don't suffer from seasonal allergies? The reason I, I pick seasonal allergies is because that's something that happens regularly and it's not deadly. You know, you don't want to study this necessarily in people with a peanut allergy. Because that would be very interesting. Because I do have allergies and I do have depression. Interesting. Now you understand why I clicked on it. Because me, 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 me. <laughs> okay, let's get to the last section of the show. I got uh, two things I want to talk about here. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Two things. I want to talk about something that uh, kind of came as a sort of realization to me the other day. Well, yesterday, I think it was. So one of my favorite parts of the day is when I take latte for his walk in the evening. I love the day walk, but the evening walk is the most beautiful time. I wait until the sun gets below the tops of the trees so that I might be blinded by the light. Uh, and then we go out and it's the coolest part of the day, both temperature wise and just mood wise. And I don't know, walking is just incredible. And walking is this thing that's just, it's a pattern interrupter. And when you have depression or anxiety, pattern interrupters are extremely important. Um, 
let's talk about anxiety and hypochondria, both of which I've suffered from. And I guess you could say I still do, because maybe it's like being an alcoholic, like you always have them. You just learn to live with them. The, my understanding from my experience, once again, not an expert, just uh, someone who's experienced them severely. What they are is aberrant brain patterns. They're brain patterns that repeat over and over again. It's, a, it's an obsessive brain pattern. Hypochondria in particular. Uh, is, is, my heart, is my heart beating weird? Maybe my heart's beating weird. I think my heart's beating weird. And no matter what you think about, your brain keeps going back to your heart, your heart, your heart, your heart, your heart. That's the same thing anxiety is like, just at a different degree. And you're thinking about different things. Am I going to be able to pay that bill? I don't know if I have the money to pay that bill. I am so tired of being broke. And your brain keeps going back to it. And this is what builds that anxiety inside of you. It's this reciprocating pattern, or as I would like to call it, the tightening spiral. Because it's a spiral that keeps getting tighter and tighter until you feel like you're going to crack. Okay? In a way, um, well, we, we, we know what cancer is, right? Cancer is cell growth. It's something normal. But instead of stopping, cancer is cell growth that doesn't stop. It just keeps growing and growing. That's why you get tumors, right? Because it's cell growth. It's, it's cell replication. It's, it's literally the, it's the mechanism with which we regenerate cells in our bodies mutated. And it can't stop. So in that way, hypochondria and anxiety are cancer of thought because they are thought patterns that continue to grow and they won't stop. So you need to be able to break those patterns. Only way out of it is to break the pattern. That's something that Tony Robbins talks about a lot. I'm not a huge acolyte of him, but I have listened to some of his stuff um, because I know that he reads good books and uh, he articulates some things really well. Every once in a while, I'll pick up some, if I'm in a in a super anxiety place, every once in a while, I will pick up uh, like some kind of uh, Tony Robbins audio thing and uh, it, it elevates my mood. Uh, I don't know that he's got everything figured out, but he has some good ideas and pattern breaking is one of them. He has a story about uh, slapping some guy that like yells at his employees, slapping him in the face to break the pattern. I don't know if you need to go that extreme. I don't know. But to me, walking is a pattern breaker like that. So the other day, like I was starting to feel some anxiety build up in my body. And I realized uh, it was because I'd been sitting at the computer doing repetitive tasks. Uh, I've been reorganizing my notes, you know, settle casting. I talked about that. I've been reorganizing notes, and part of that is bringing in some old stuff. And there's about uh, 600 little notes that I had to, uh, I needed to make sure the dates were correct on them. I needed to rename them, and I needed to move them. So for a couple of hours, I was just sitting there going, click, rename, click, look at date, click, move to this folder, next file, click, rename, click, look at date, click, move to this folder. Now, if you notice that repetitive, next file, next file, same thing, next file, same thing, next file, same thing, next file. That's the same thing as an aberrant thought pattern, as an obsessive anxiety hypochondriac thought pattern. It is the same type of thought pattern. So sometimes if I do an anxiety, I mean, a, 
an activity like that for too long, it starts to trigger the same physiological response in my body as anxiety. Because I'm triggering the same neurological pathways. And it starts to trigger the physiological pathways. So I started feeling that. I'm like, oh, I'm giving myself anxiety right now. So I got up and I went for a walk. And uh, <coughs> walking is a wonderful way to break it because you're changing your scenery, you're changing your smells, you're changing your sights, you're changing your sounds. If you're changing the activity that you're doing, everything starts to shift. And it's like a big, that, that walk in the evening is a big part, even if I'm not having anxiety, it's a big part of my day because when I go on that walk, I also don't take headphones. That's my rule for the evening walk, no headphones. And it's a time for my mind to shut off and to just hear things and just like be. And that pattern repetition, I mean, that pattern break within my normal day has been tremendous for my mental health. And I recommend that everybody do that at least once a day. And longer than, we usually go for about a half hour, but the longer you can do it, the better, I think. But it got me thinking about COVID. It got me thinking about the last year and a half to two years. Uh, when we started, when we started the lockdown, I kind of joked around, um, obviously not about to the, the dangers and all that, but I, I kind of made light of the whole lockdown situation when everybody's like freaking out, you know, like two weeks in, everybody's freaking out about the lockdown. I would make light of it with friends and family. And I would say my life hasn't changed at all because it was true. What I was doing during lockdown, my daily day-to-day -day activity, where I was, what I was doing at what time was exactly the same. Didn't change because I was already in hermit mode for like a year before that. So that hadn't changed at all. But what I didn't know, or what I wasn't prepared for, was that despite that, preparedness and that this is just normal for me, there was a part of that whole thing that I was robbed of that I didn't even realize was valuable. I, I mean, I, I must say I realized it was valuable. I didn't realize it was as valuable as it was. And that is that pattern breaking. So in order for me to get into a comfortable rut, a good pattern, a ritual. Uh, I have to be able to break it every once in a while just to break it up. So what I would do is I would just I'd get to a point and be like, oh, this is starting to feel monotonous. My life is starting to feel monotonous. So I go grab a beer with a friend or I go to the forest or I go to the damn mall or I'd eat lunch at some weird place that I'd never heard of before. Go to a coffee shop I've never been to before and sit and write in a notebook. And just like that one afternoon was enough to break the pattern of the monotony so that the next day I could go back and just continue to repeat that happily. Ah, I'm, I'm comfortable and happy with this again. Which, as I said before, that, that routine is good for my mental health, for me, to battle anxiety. So I didn't realize how valuable those little afternoons off to be able to do those things were until I couldn't do them anymore.
And it, it makes sense now why in the last year I've had another flare up of anxiety because I was robbed of that pattern breaking and another pattern breaking that I also didn't realize the value of, which is other people. And I'm an introvert and fairly antisocial, at least in the last few years, several years, a few years. And because of that, I guess I, I tend to not worry so much about quote unquote social time because I know that, uh, I'm fine on my own. I'm happy on my own. I, I do things, you know, like I like to sit and watch what I want to watch and then read some books and I get into my zone and I'm good with that. But what I started to do when I was on this walk, you know, going through all these things about like, you know, I had the realization about the, the little afternoons off. I started thinking about that social time and I had this really weird thought that when I was being a more social person before I was a hermit, I didn't really ever have anxiety. And what I mean by that is I never had noticeable anxiety, but I started thinking about it. I'm like, no, I had anxiety. It just was super manageable. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Like I had minor anxiety. I'd never had major anxiety. And I started thinking about why that would be different. And this is a conclusion I came up with. I was using other people to self-medicate myself. I was using other people to break my patterns. I didn't realize I was doing it. But when I would feel myself in a rut, which would be an uncomfortableness, an anxiety, or something like that, although maybe I wouldn't have used that vocabulary, I would go hang out with somebody. I'd go talk to somebody. I'd go hang out. Because it's really hard to stay in a repetitive thought pattern when you're genuinely trying to interact with another human being. So in a way, they were like a medication for me. You know, I'm sure that dopamine and oxytocin played some sort of role in that as well. But for the most part, it was the pattern breaking of interacting with someone else. And that was a big, wow, moment where I'm like, whoa, never thought about that before. And I'm not saying it's true, but it is an interesting thought. And it does seem to have some kind of legitimacy to it. Hmm. What are we at? Oh my goodness, this is a long episode. Good thing I'll have one more thing to talk about. Okay, let's go back to Zettelkasten. Uh, Zettelkasten, the, what I want to talk about Zettelkasten this week is, uh, it's kind of intimidating. Zettel, when you start actually doing it, it is kind of intimidating because, uh, it works and it works almost too well. And uh, I mean it in the sense of collecting notes, we'll get into the other stuff in a minute, but what it reminded me of is I did an experiment uh, at the beginning of the year where I was doing free writing or I would sit. This was based off of something I learned uh, about Isaac Osimov. I might have to go back to like January episodes. I might've been talking about this stuff back then. I'm sure it was. I didn't look up to see what episodes they'd be in. Uh, anyways, I would sit down and I'd say, okay, 
I'm going to write for one hour, no matter what. I don't know what I'm going to write about. I'm just going to sit here and write. I did it both typing and handwriting. I tried both. And I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep going until the hour's up. Even if I'm writing stupid, ridiculous shit, like it smells like dog shit out here or something like that. Who cares? Just write, just write, just write. And that was a mind-blowing experience because, yeah, there was a lot of stuff in in those things that was useless. But then all of a sudden, like, my brain started showing up. And it would start creating thoughts that if I, if I wasn't sitting there doing that for an hour, forcing my brain to write for an hour, that I might never have come up with. Connections and realizations and uh, rememberings, sometimes memories, and just a tremendous amount of stuff. And I would get to the end of each day and I'd have, I want to say like over 2,000. No, it was more than 2,000. I'd have thousands of words every day. And for the majority of, I did that for, I want to say I tried to go for 66 days. I think I went near 66 days. Uh, the majority of that I did handwriting. And it's been eight months, and I still have not pulled that stuff out and transcribed it into my notes and pulled out all the value from it. But there's a ton, a ton. And the, the only reason I stopped doing it is because I, could, I knew I couldn't keep up with it. The habit I could keep up with. But there was so much stuff in there that for every hour that I would do that, I knew I was going to need three or four hours to extract everything from it. And this Zettelkasten, while well, not as extreme as that, it reminded me of that. I was reading a book and, and writing notes on note cards while I was reading it. And I had a stack and I'm like, oh my God, now I got to type these in later. I started realizing like, oh shit, this is intimidating. I don't know. Am I going to, do I want to do this? Do I want to keep doing this? I mean, I got nearly like a hundred thousand words from the other project that I still haven't even touched, the free writing project. But the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized like the last few years, I think for all of us, but for me in particular, there's been a lot of uh, stasis, a lot of just kind of like, like I'm stuck in the amber of something. You know, I'm just kind of frozen. And even though that these things might overload me, it's probably good. Uh, I'm considering bringing the free writing too. That's why I say these things, bringing the free writing back, maybe not a whole hour. But even if they overload me, they'll still create some kind of change. And that change is something I need. So I might do it just for the sake of throwing a, a wrench into the gears, you know? I'm not, I don't even know how I'm going to do it from a log logistical standpoint. But I think I need to. Uh, I've been rereading something I'll probably finish before next week, so we might talk about it a little bit next week. But I've been rereading Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. And one of the things in there is basically short accounts of like over a hundred different artists and their daily patterns. Like, what do they do every day? What time do they wake up? What, you know, like what were their daily rituals? And, uh, one thing that's consistent over, I'd say 90% of the people in there is they put excessive amount of hours into their craft 
every day. Typically, I'd say the average is four hours, um, though some eight, which sounds insane, except when you think about the fact that you go to work and work for somebody else for eight hours a day, and that's normal. Nine hours, technically, right? Because you're, you're gone for an hour for lunch, too. So if you are an author and you make enough money off your books that that's your job, then is it that strange to do your job eight hours a day, nine hours a day? It's a different way to think about uh, creative work. I don't often think of creative work that way. Although if you abide by Kurt Vonnegut, he says the brain is mush after four hours every day. It's a biological fact, according to him. So, while I tend to agree with him on so many things, I'm not sure about that. Um, a little bit more about Zettelkasten. One of the problems that's overwhelming to me that I realized um, going forward was, okay, the note thing is one thing, but there's another aspect of it that I didn't understand until I started trying to prep for this episode. So I have, uh, right now transcribed into my notes on the computer, uh, into Zettelkast and into short atomic notes. I only have like, let's say like 20, I'm slowly breaking stuff up and like working things in there. But so what I wanted to do is I said, the, the 20 that I happen to have in there for the most part, I think like 18 of the 20 are all kind of connected. They're all linked to each other in some way. And I'm like, cool, I can make that the second section, you know, of the episode, you know, the, this section that we're in right now, I can put that in the episode. So I sat down and I'm okay. And let me arrange these. And I started over and around, over and around. And then all of a sudden I realized I'm like, what the fuck? Like, if, I, if I put uh, number one here and then I'll put number two after that and number three, obviously they're not numbered. I'm doing this to make it easy on your brain. Number two, then number three, then number four, then number five. Um, but number five should supersede number one. And I started realizing that because they're all connected, that there's no linear pattern, that they're all, like, there's no defined beginning and end because it's not an essay. It's not top down. It's bottom up. So everything is connected. So like, depending on where you start, you get a different outcome. So there isn't like one defined outcome on a topic. And what I didn't realize, of course, that it's part of the purpose of it, that you get a different experience every time you encounter it. But what I started to realize is everything that I knew about Zettelkasten was about two things, how to build the structure of the Zettelkasten and how to write the notes. And while Sunka Arens does go into using the Zettelkasten to write. He doesn't actually talk about it in a practical step-by-step -step way. He talks about the bigger ideological ideas of it. So what I found myself sitting there, let's imagine this metaphorically instead of the computer. I sat there metaphorically with a stack of note cards in front of me going, now what the hell do I do with these? I built the system. I know how to connect them to each other and how to write them. What the hell do I do with them? 
how do I take these Legos and make something? And Legos is a perfect metaphor. And I just said that on the fly right now, because if you go buy the Batmobile Lego, you get the instruct, you get the instruction on how to build the Batmobile. But if you take apart the Batmobile, you can build whatever the hell you want with those Lego pieces. You can make an airplane. You can make a tree. You know, it's going to be black because Batmobile pieces, but you, those pieces don't only make the Batmobile. They're modular. And that's the thing with settle casting is every atomic note is modular. That's the point of the abstraction when he says that the point is to take things to the point of abstraction so that they can be applied to different areas of research that a knowledge, that knowledge about breathing may be applicable to knowledge about blood sugar or knowledge about, uh, arbory or arbory. Is that a word <laughs> about trimming trees that it can be applicable in other ways because it's been abstracted modular, modularized. So you have to stack modular pieces and I didn't know what to do with them. You know, cause I'm trying to learn the way that he would do it so that I can decide how it works for me. But I started looking things up and like, no, to same thing. Telling me how to build the Zettelkasten. Tell me how to write the notes. Tell me how to build the Zettelkasten. Tell me how to build the notes. Tell me the story of Nicholas Lumen again and again and again and again and again, over and over. Everybody spitting out the same fucking content. The same information, everybody summarizing Sunka Ahrens, who's summarizing Nicholas Lumen. And I realized the only way I'm going to figure this out is to go to the source, to go to Lumen. So that's what I did. I found an article called communicating with slip boxes, which is what he called working with the slip box. He didn't call it writing with the Zettelkasten, by the way. I don't know if I said that in the last episode, Zettelkasten means slip box. A slip box is, you know, those things that the library would put the cards in. Yeah, that's a slip box. So that's a Zettelkasten. It's just the German word for it. Communicating with slip boxes. He didn't say writing with, with slip boxes. He said communicating because he said, when you go to it, you're communicating with it. And everybody thinks it's metaphorical, but that's the secret is that you, when you go to the slip box, and you pull out uh, 15 notes that you have that in some way are related to imposter syndrome, which is some of the subjects I have right now in my Zettelkasten. You're not going to be able to go one, two, three. Okay, let's organize these and everything's written. And everybody seems to insinuate that, but Newman himself says that's not what happens that you have to have the thought or the question in your head already. And the reason you go to the slip box is not to write or to come to the answer. You go to the slip box to communicate with it. You go to the slip box to get ideas that are different than the ones that are already in your head. These are the surprising revelations that he talked about. You go there so that you're not in tunnel vision. You go there to break it out. So you're just supposed to drift around through the Zettelkasten 
and discover things like, oh, whoa, okay, let me pull that out. And let me pull that out. But you're pulling it out into a structure that you've already been building in your head, an argument or a question you've already been building in your head. The, the, the slip box isn't doing it for you. The slip box, in fact, is and sometimes contradicting you. That's that whole bottom-up thing. Remember, we talked about that last week, the idea that bottom-up, it reduces confirmation bias. And it makes, it makes contradictions exciting instead of terrifying. So that's why you go to the slip box. The Zettelkasten isn't about creating order. It's not about organizing things. Let me quote Luminaire. As a result of extensive work with this technique, a kind of secondary memory will arise, an alter ego with whom we can constantly communicate. It proves to be similar to our own memory in that it does not have a thoroughly constructed order of its entirety, not hierarchy, and most certainly no linear structure like a book. Another quote. The entirety of these notes can only be described as disorder. But at the very least, it is a disorder with non-arbitrary internal structure. It's meant to be chaotic. It's meant to be like a blender that you put your thoughts into. It's meant to fuck you up a little bit. Because... That confirmation bias, that linear thought, that tunnel vision is the enemy. It takes years, he says, before the Zettelkasten will actually become capable of this, by the way. You've got to keep reading and putting stuff in there because for the first couple years, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to go to it and you're going to pull out shit that you remember. But once you have enough stuff in there, that's when it starts surprising you. That's when it starts pulling out stuff you don't remember. That's when it starts making connections to things that you would never have done if you sat at that paper for an hour or four hours or eight hours. The slip box, it doesn't do your thinking or your writing for you. It's not about pulling cards and copying them, which so many videos on Rome research seem to insinuate. That's not what it's about. It's about taking questions you have, problems that you want to solve, things that you want to extrapolate or learn more about, taking them, thinking about them, yourself, using your brain. And then, as an additional source, going to the slip box, the way that you go to a friend to discuss something that you have an opinion on already. And you see what the slip box provides you. Because the slip box is not about the assumed connections. It's about the unassumed connections. That's the value of it. It's not to do your logic for you. It's to keep your logic in check. To keep your confirmation bias in check. To take you places that you wouldn't have been able to do on your own because you think linearly. And that blew my mind <laughs> literally in some ways uh there's another I'll, I'll put a link for a video there's a video by a guy who i also happen to think is german i'm not a uh <laughs> a language, or 
accent expert. He could be Austrian. I don't know. Sounds German. Uh, I don't know his name, but his channel is called Brain Friendly Thinking. And he has a 10-minute video where he talks. It's called How Genius Are Made, which I assume is a mistranslation of some sort. And it's what he does in 10 minutes tells you more about Lumen's actual process from beginning to end than anything I've found other than Lumen's own articles, which actually uh, he gives more than Lumen does in there because Lumen's stuff is parsed out between many things he wrote over the years. This is all in 10 minutes, and he brings it all together in a very concise way. Um, obviously, English is not his first language, so he, he does what I do, which is pause to think about the next thing he's going to say. So if you can deal with me, you can deal with him. And plus, he has a rad accent, and he seems way smarter than me. So go check that out, and in 10 minutes and like 15 seconds, you'll have a better understanding of it. And I, I think, in my opinion, because it gives information that nobody else does about Zettelkasten, it's the best video on Zettelkasten, <laughs> because it's not incomplete. Okay, I'm pushing it. We're at two hours and 10 minutes or something like that. Uh, announcements before we get out of here. I have deleted a bunch of my Instagram accounts. I deleted all of the list accounts. All I have left is the real chat hall and latte like the drink, which the dog's account. I don't flood my other account with pictures of my dog. So I'm a proud papa. Uh, truth is, I just don't give a shit about Instagram anymore. <laughs> With one account, I can care a little bit. I've been playing around with um, doing self-portraits and putting up dinosaurs, which, by the way, I still haven't seen any payphones yet. Keep your eyes open, your camera lenses open, shutters open. Take pictures of, of them and tag me. I want to see them. Um, the real chat hall. So, yeah, that's what's going on with Instagram. It's, it's better, you know, because... Uh, I'm spending more time on my website now. That's my new social media. Is I'm doing little short blogs of everything. Everything that, that it's this is kind of a hybrid episode. But in the end, my goal is that everything that I talk about in the episodes will have appeared in the blog in some way before. And I'm literally writing all the little pieces that I'm going to jump off from in the episode in the blog. Half of the things at least, whoops, half of the things at least that I talked about in this episode, I have very short little pieces on, on the website already that have been up there this week. And that's, that's kind of what I'm going to, I'm going to go forward with. And, uh, let's get out of here. So if you guys want to leave me a message, want to tell me a story, want to correct something, um, in a nice way. Okay. You want to, I don't know. You want to tell me about the UFO you saw? I would love to hear that story. You can call and uh, leave me a message on the answering machine, which is one six six nine two four five six zero nine eight. It's also in the description of this episode, or at least the link to the contact page is, which is where that number is, as well as the contact page where you can just uh, send a typed message if you prefer love to hear from you guys and uh 
time to open my heart and pour out my love to my Patreon supporters. Thank you guys. As always, you guys are incredible. I'm humbled, humbled. And uh, if you guys would like to join them, give them some company and uh, chat with them. Maybe hear the behind the scenes audio that I put up every week. You can go over to patreon.com forward slash chat hall and become a patron too. We could be best friends forever. And uh, go check out the website. I recommend uh, maybe signing up for that newsletter. I've decided the newsletter is just going to tell people when a new episode of the podcast comes out. But attached to that will be the show notes. And the show notes act as a summary for everything I published on the website during the week. Isn't that neat? It's like a all-in-one package. So go check that out. And uh, once again, send me those dinosaur photos. Take pictures of pay phones. Send them to me. Tag me, I mean. So uh, I guess it's time to do our closing line, which I, of course, forgot to prepare again. <laughs> Guys, uh, please be kind and be open to the chaos of your thinking. And never forget, I love you, babies. Bye-bye.